Hello and welcome to another episode of The Roundtable. My name is Max Taylor and this week I'm joined by Matt Pratton and Alex Smith and we'll be discussing the AUKUS agreement. In September of 2021, Australia, the United Kingdom and the USA signed an agreement aimed at strengthening military capabilities in the Pacific region. The agreement has largely been framed within the international media as an agreement based upon providing Australia with high-tech nuclear submarines aimed at countering Chinese influence in the Pacific. However, the agreement also allows the three states to share in-depth information regarding advanced military technology as well as paving the way for further military coordination between the three states in the face of China. In this recording, we will discuss a variety of themes, including specifics of what the agreement actually involves, what regional states think about the agreement, and criticisms of the AUKUS agreement itself. So, to get us started, what actually is the AUKUS Agreement? Well, from what I've been able to find, it's a trilateral security partnership between, well, UK, US and Australia, which are three of the five member states of what's uh, popularly known as the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Partnership. And this particular agreement attempts to strengthen cooperation between the, between Australia, uh, the UK and the USA uh, on in areas such as artificial intelligence, uh, cyber capabilities, quantum computing, uh, long-range strike capabilities, and the most reported on part, of course, is the ena- uh, enabling Australia to acquire uh, nuclear-powered su- uh, submarines. It's like, information on the specifics of it is, uh, is actually being quite difficult to find. It seems to be something that's sort of yeah, just in the in the mix of in the mix of developing. The most recent development we've been able to find is in relation to the nuclear sub side of things, where. Uh, Australia has signed as as uh, signed some uh, uh, binding agreements between the three for the UK and the US to share uh, information with Australia on nuclear uh, nuclear propulsion for, uh, for submarines, but it seems to be a, a very very broad uh, a very sort of broad agreement with um, with what appears to be not much substance at the moment. I wouldn't have said it's not got substance. I think it's it's more yeah it's an embryonic agreement. Um, details are yet to be sort of hammered out behind the scenes, I guess. But you got to remember, they're not going to come out and say, even if they've already decided everything that's going to be part of the agreement, they're probably not going to make it all public. You know, um, it's 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 established basically a framework for future cooperation in in areas of military technology. You know, um, yeah, I think with that so, said, so it- I think the future will tell what what orcus really involves you know no, yeah. no one knows off the bat i think they want to keep it vague as well so they don't limit themselves or even pigeon themselves pigeonhole themselves into perhaps going in a direction that they just don't naturally find themselves going through in five years time so i think they've almost deliberately kept it vague just to sort of allow the framework to sort of deliver whatever they want it to in the future because at the end of the day they don't actually know specifically what's going to happen in 10 years time yeah because i mean like things that have been mentioned as well so obviously the submarines take center stage matt I think you mentioned like long range strike capability, which is something Australia would probably probably want to look into. But no, also to. like <laughs> like AI, you know, artificial mm. intelligence and quantum. It's like what's quantum you know, what's mm. quantum computing at the minute? Well, it it could go anywhere. So so yeah. For sure. So this uh this agreement's been formed within, you know, the broader context of regional security at the time, including the, the Quad Agreement, which is between Australia, India, Japan and the US. So how is this going to impact the Quad Agreement, if at all? And what's the relationship between these two agreements? Well, I, I don't think it's going to really affect the, the Quad, uh, the Quad much at all. Uh, from what I've been able to find is that the Quad's a very, uh, it's a very loose 
ba- uh, very loose ba- loosely based forum. It's to for those four countries to sort of uh, in, just engage with uh, a multitude of of issues rather than be something that's uh, has set uh, has set parameters. So, I, I think within the quad, uh, I think where there could be some issues when it comes to when it comes to or- the AUKUS agreement and the quad is with regards to the. I mean, with regards to nuclear uh, nuclear capability, uh, nuclear power side of things for for submarines, for India this could be uh, this could be a bit controversial because we want to sort of consider it in the context of COP twenty six, Australia went there and committed to uh, you know a lot of the net zero uh, the, the uh, net zero sort of calls, and India was uh, was uh, well I'd, I'd say treated quite harshly uh, during uh, during that conference with its desire to sort of. Maintain uh, uh, maintain preferences for fossil fuels, uh, etc. And when it comes to Japan, I, th- I think this could be it could also be a bit of a snub towards Japan as well as uh, I suppose if we get a chance to discuss it uh, discuss it further on in, in the podcast. Australia and Japan have had uh, have had prior defence agreements which uh, were you know, so- uh, signed and and were going to be going to sort of. Uh, be enacted upon, but they were then cancelled at the at a, at a moment's notice. So, it could be in it, for Japan's case, the orchestra group could be a little bit of uh, rubbing some uh, diplomatic salt in the wound. I don't. I'd be surprised if Japan's that bothered. I mean, in terms of the Quad and AUKUS, they're separate organisations. There's overlap, yeah, but there's no need for everyone to be involved in the same um, mechanisms. You know, if anything, I think AUKUS strengthens australia you know it's it, it's aimed at strengthening one quarter of the quad which is good japan has always looked to itself for sort of defense technology autonomy and they're perfectly capable of building nuclear submarines if they want so you know i don't think that they're they're losing out and it, india you know that india's its own its own beast there's there's no i don't think anyone's going to feel left out by this mm. you do sort of think could AUKUS potentially expand in the future? Yes. What you know? Why not? Um, Japan and in, possibly India would be logical, um, logical future members. But I doubt it will. I think it's very much a, a, a creation of the Anglosphere. Um, you could say would, you know, Canada would be a more logical, um, more logical expansion. Although. I don't think Canada's that interested in in the in defense mechanisms in the Pacific. New Zealand's out because they're too busy virtue signaling their position as non-nuclear, um, you know, no, no nuclear um, submarines or or power or anything is allowed in New Zealand waters. So, and they're also a bit soft underbelly of Five Eyes. So, when it comes to China, so I can't see them being involved. In fact, New Zealand's stance on nuclear energy in the past has gotten in trouble uh, in the Five Eyes intelligence sharing uh, agreements, where their I believe it was uh, their their stance on nuclear energy at one point led to a bit of a standoff between, uh, with the US, and it resulted in in, the, in New Zealand being excluded from the Five Eyes intelligence sharing uh, community for a, for a period of time. So, trying to fit New Zealand into the AUKUS agreement is would be a, a it it's almost a non-starter. Yeah, I think I think Jacinda Ardern said like, "Oh, we weren't invited to join," and then in the next breath, of course, nuclear subs aren't allowed in our territory. So it's like, well, yeah. there you are then. 
yeah. I think also with the treaty being heavily sort of fixed on at the moment on nuclear submarines as well, Canada and New Zealand, just as you guys kind of mentioned, simply just don't have much to offer to this. So Canada's got a very small military and isn't focused on nuclear submarines. And the same goes for New Zealand, obviously, where they're not wanting nuclear power. So a lot of people sort of portrayed this as the two countries being snubbed, which I guess it depends who you ask. It could be perceived as Canada and New Zealand being snubbed. But um, personally, I think, as you kind of pointed out earlier as well, just because a country is not in this, so just because other quad members aren't in AUKUS, for example, doesn't necessarily mean that their own relationship with the USA or with whoever has been compromised, you know, it doesn't take away from other agreements, does it? So Five Eyes will probably still operate as as normal, despite, you know, even with AUKUS in place. Absolutely. Yeah. They'll just be... There'll, there'll just be closer cooperation between the three of the of yeah. those five members, which uh, from you know from our past experience in the Australian military, the cooperation between uh, Australia, US, and UK has has been it, it's pretty much been that that situation for quite some time. So, AUKUS will just be a, a matter of just continuing business as usual in in that regard. Mm. There is one country, however, that I think has been in the news a lot for whether it's been snubbed by this or not, and that's France. So uh, obviously there was a lot of news about how France was originally supposed to provide uh, 12 shortfin Barracuda submarines. However, that deal has fallen through amidst much uh, much quite aggressive discourse, I guess, between Australia and France. So have you got, is it, guys got anything to add to that? Do you actually think France was snubbed or do you think this was inevitable or what? Uh, well, frankly, I, I don't think France was snubbed whatsoever with, the, with, with a lot of commentary over the years on the 12 shortfin Barracuda submarines. The particular design of the submarine, it was, it was something that was getting, being designed straight uh, from from scratch. And what I've been able to find with regards to commentary on the progress of the of, of developing the short fin Barracuda submarines was that these subs were going to follow the same fate as the current and now very out of date Collins class submarines that the Royal Australian Navy operates. The the development, construction, and acquisition of these twelve short fin Barracuda submarines was becoming to was pretty much going towards the same fate. It was uh, not going to be delivered on time and the costs for this program were just becoming excessive. So uh, frankly, I think France has is, is taken a sort of a hostile stance just simply because it, it has to in order to try and save face. But uh, as, as far as you know, being snubbed or any kind of sort of betrayal, I, I, I don't think that is the case whatsoever. I mean, this program... But, the Barracuda program was already becoming a, a major, a major sort of um, black hole for government spending. I don't know about snubbed uh, for France. I think I think you're right, Matt. The writing, the writing was on the wall that with cost overruns and delays and stuff to the to the agreement. Um, but also, it's not just that the subs wouldn't arrive in time or on budget. I think they were diesel electric, um, which as opposed to nuclear, which would not be optimal given the for the roles that they they would be employed in in the future. Um, and I think, to be honest, there was a bit of a French intelligence failure on this. Like, the rising on the wall, they should have seen it coming. Now, I think pre-election, there was a bit of posturing in, in the response from, like, Macron. You know, he obviously has to be um, very vocal on this. But... And also, I suppose, while they're all hug, while Biden and and Boris and and Macron were all hugging and taking selfies in uh, the G seven in Cornwall re- earlier this year, this agreement was already taking shape behind the scenes. I think so. So yeah, I get why they might feel a bit betrayed and 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 quite annoyed. But 
as you say, the writing was on the wall there, I think. Yeah. And actually, come to think of it, someone just, uh, just uh, remembered a, a, uh, possibly another, another uh, relevant point is that when it comes to, uh, I suppose, Euro- European military equipment, it's rarely, uh, it's rarely performed well in in Australia. Uh, for example, there wasn't too long ago where, when I was when I was in the military at the time, I, uh, just the Euro the Tiger armed reconnaissance helicopter had just come on uh, just come online. This is developed by Eurocopter, and uh, this particular asset, this uh, this uh, armed reconnaissance helicopter, is supposed to be a. I suppose uh, an Australian equivalent to the uh, to the Apache helicopter that's operated by the US and, and the UK, and when it was when they tried to operate uh, operate this equipment in Australia, it's it very often um, could couldn't even take off uh, just with all the maintenance issues that occurred. So European equipment has, doesn't have a history of reliability in in, in Australia. So short fin Barracuda submarines trying to operate in the in, uh, from Australian shores, uh, probably wouldn't have had much of a chance of operating successfully anyway. <laughs> so these agreements, they never, such as AUKUS, they never really form in a vacuum. And obviously there's a lot going on in the uh, Pacific region at the moment. So with AUKUS, why now? You know, What's caused this agreement to form now if there is a catalyst for it? Is this a short-term uh, fix? Is this a short-term response? Or is this after years and years of mounting pressure? What is it? Well, the agreement itself came together pretty quickly it would seem um over you know not many people worked on it and it it happened fast i think obviously this aimed at china um no one overtly admits that but i mean everyone knows it Mm -hmm. um china's been expanding its all of its military capabilities but its navy especially i mean it's it's got the largest fleet in the world now it's bigger than the american fleet You'd say, like, qualitatively, it's it's not as good and it lacks the experience and all that's true, but it still has, I think, currently 155 major surface combatants. Um, it's more belligerent in its, um, in its actions in the South China Sea. Um, it's talking a lot tougher on Taiwan. Um, and it's, it, I think it's just the, the growing sort of the groundswell of Chinese power um, is starting to dominate the region, and this is just one step towards balancing it you can also say sorry to jump in as well but the way that um for example coronavirus has happened um australia had the audacity to call for a um for proper uh investigation into the origins of covid19 and china responded with punitive trade measures and and the like so i think that's just another example of how China isn't really prepared to play by the established rules um, and adhere to the established norms. And if they're not going to, they're not going to play by the same rules as everyone else. Then, then they have to be balanced. Mm. Yeah, totally agree on that one. It's ma- mainly a mainly a response to increasing chi- uh, increasing belligerence from the from the Chinese Communist Party. It's been an open secret. It's it's been sort of you know, increasingly known back back in Australia for quite some time that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is not Australia's friend, um, despite China being Australia's biggest trade partner. In fact, the response to uh, you know the the response to Australia's calls for you know, investigations into the origins of COVID nineteen, those sanctions still can uh, still continue with uh, sanctions on iron ore exports from Australia, for example. I mean, uh, you know. That is one of Australia's key exports to China, and it's uh, you know it's been an, an effort, a, a pretty much an effort to 
punish Australia in any any way they can. Yeah, and also I know it's Matt before interesting theme actually. You shared before we started this, we were just talking about this earlier about the Australian white papers which they publish. You know, their strategic objectives. One thing I noticed looking through what you shared was in the early two thousands, Australia was quite clearly in the wording reluctant to point China out as a uh, as an adversary. You know, they're quite reluctant to label China as a rival in the region. Whereas as you read the papers as they go on, the language does change a bit towards China, doesn't it? And I noticed they definitely start to highlight China as being a strategic threat. So I guess you could say AUKUS, therefore, is a response to a long t- a long-term feeling with an Australian uh, defence right now, I guess, that you know we can't sleep on China. We have to start taking this seriously. Yeah. I mean, in, in that regard, I mean, pardon my, pardon my cynicism, but uh, yeah, it, it's... Australia has been, when it comes to acknowledging the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, Australia has pretty much been dragged kicking and screaming into in, into, into recognising that. I mean, with the Defence White Papers, for example, uh, there's some some points I've come across when it comes to, uh, from the Australian Parliamentary Library is that when it comes to uh, Australian defence policy, the Australian military and the Australian government have a long and proud history of getting in their own way. Uh, reason uh, reason for that is, by their own admission from the Parliamentary Library, is that defence white papers are have always been ambitious and rarely brought to fruition. Um, and Professor John Blackson actually sort of kind of repeated this recently with some remarks, uh, I believe it was in the Brisbane Times. He mentioned that Australia tends to have a very boutique kind of military capability, uh, which is, I think, both those points are sort of very, very polite ways of saying that militarily Australia is all talk no walk and when it comes to those defense white papers uh, they've been they're often uh, based on the principle of self-reliance but also stressing the importance of uh, Australia's alliance with the United States now in reality from my from my experience back in the Australian army there's been plenty of reliance on the, on the, on the US but very little in the way of of, of being of being self, of being self-reliant so, Matt, that's a pretty, uh, pretty damning critique of uh, Australia's current strategic capabilities. So what does, not just Australia, but Australia as well, what do the members of AUKUS actually gain from signing this? You know, what's going to change? What are they going to improve on as part of this? I think what the, what the US and the UK will, will be able to gain is actually quite a lot more, uh, quite a lot more sort of presence in, in Australia. In fact, there's already, been, uh, there's already been some indications that the US will forward deploy uh, quite a few more assets, uh, air assets like F-35s and, and, and F-22s, and even even bomber, bomber aircraft, uh, have them positioned in Australia in order to in order to uh, so, you know, carry out sorties as close to the Asia uh, Asia Pacific region as possible, which would bolster actually some prior uh, some prior made agreements that came under the Obama administration, where uh, President Obama uh, decided to have. I believe it was up to two and a half thousand uh, U.S. Marines uh, stationed in in Darwin. So there'll be, it'll, it'll, for, uh, and I dare say there'll be some improved access for for the UK as well. So AUKUS, I think, for the for the U.S. and the UK, it will provide them greater uh, a chance for greater access uh, to oper- operate in uh, in the Pacific region by using Australia as a, uh, I suppose, as a forward staging area. I think with regards to Britain, um, AUKUS really plays into the sort of post-Brexit global Britain um, narrative. Whether it's actually going to enable British military presence in the Asia-Pacific or not, I don't know, because 
I don't know if if Britain's really got that capability. I mean, we've sent like a couple of you know, like patrol boats are, are permanently based there, but there's there's no significant weight to to UK presence there, and I doubt there will be. There's probably politicians are probably looking at future submarine building and wondering if some of them will be built in the north of England, despite agreements that that uh, future nuclear submarines should be built in Australia itself. Um, mm. They lack the capability, so we'll see. I think the US, it's it's another sort of feather in the cap of their presence in a, in in the Asia Pacific. A big thing that the US does need if it's going to counter China um, over Taiwan, South China Sea, or even even in the Pacific itself, is the logistics in the area. Um, it's all very well thinking. Well, America's got a big, capable fleet, but you know if you can't reload your your vertical launch tubes and your your destroyers at a nearby port, and you've got to go chug all the way back to Hawaii or something, um, then that's that seriously diminishes the the firepower you could bring to bear in a conflict. So I think it's you know a strategic enabler for America as well. It's Australia could be seen as the new unsinkable aircraft carrier um, in the way that the UK was for Europe during the Cold War. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it actually, is, uh, I just want to add, I suppose, to what Alex was mentioning before when it comes to develop, like, you know, the development of uh, nuclear capabilities at the moment, that would certainly have to be developed in either the UK or the US. Um, I mean, reason being for that is that when it comes to uh, nuclear capabilities in Australia, there's only really one at the, there at the moment. That's the ANSTO uh, facility in Lucas Heights, Sydney. Uh, elsewhere, Australia does not have any kind of any kind of nuclear power infrastructure so it's going to be interesting as to how australia is going to be able to acquire nuclear powered submarines if there's if uh, there's not going to be any change towards developing a domestic nuclear power capability because without the power plants and of course the the people and the know-how that would come from them uh trying to have nuclear submarines uh it on you know coming into Australian shores is going to be well, a, a, an extremely difficult task. Yeah, I presume part of the construction is simply going to have to take, have to take place in the uh, UK or, or USA to get around some of those issues. Yeah, I think the UK is hoping that they'll just order mm. a, a variant of the um, astute class submarine, yes, yeah. which has you know uh, a lifetime reactor, and it's like, here you go, yeah. nuclear sub, enjoy. Yeah. Um, so we've spoken a lot, we've spoken quite extensively now about Australia, UK and uh, US. So what about China, and not just China as well, but also the regional states such as Indonesia, Malaysia and even ASEAN? What do they think about AUKUS? How have they reacted to this? So start with the regional states first and we'll get on to China later because I feel like that's quite a big, big question. Um, well, in terms of Southeast Asia, it's been a bit mixed. Um, some have condemned it, um, some have voiced concern, Indonesia... Um, has said it, it's, it worries about there being an arms race in the region. Malaysia quite theatrically um, declared, foreign, his, the foreign minister quite theatrically declared he was going to fly to Beijing to better understand China's response or something like that. Um, Vietnam were masterfully ambiguous um, in, in their statements, um, whereas some like the Philippines and, and Singapore have been quite receptive. Um, now, all these states are, are claimants to some degree in the South China Sea, um, but they all have to live next to China. Um, 
China's not going anywhere. They they do a lot of business with it. So so it's understandable the mixed response. Um, yeah, to come out fully in support of this agreement when you have when you haven't really got the capability to defend yourself on your own would be a politically a political blunder, really. I think on behalf of any of the regional states, if they were to come out and say, "I fully support this," it yeah, would... I I wonder, like certainly with say like with Malaysia and their um sort of mild condemnation of it, you sort of think they can't, like you say, they can't come out in full support of it. They're certainly not going to try and join it or anything like mm. that. But ASEAN, apart from the fact that other members of ASEAN just just don't have a dog in the fight, um, ASEAN is is not a defence actor. Um, there's there's no other real mechanism for them, and I think there's no, there's no mechanism for them to sort of unite and maybe help to balance China. I think behind closed doors, they're probably all actually quite pleased about it that there is going to be something to to a counterweight to uh, China. Yeah, I guess it gives them an option as well if push comes to shove because uh, up until now it's very much been quite a divided opposition to Chinese expansion in the South China Sea, I guess. So now at least if uh, regional states were forced to pick a side, at least there's more of a opposing side to China now if they were to, to go that way. Yeah, I think I think some of the criticism like the the idea that, oh, it'll, it'll bring about an arms race in the region. Mm. It's like China is, re- is arming at such a tremendous rate that you know saying that an arms race is a concern is seems a bit naive to be honest the yeah there's an arm race already already occurring at the moment it's being done by yeah there's done, one person there's, in there's that one, race there's one per, China, there's yeah. one person in the race yeah. <laughs> it's also um it's quite an interesting criticism as well to criticize the arms race because i notice a lot of these a lot of the discourse about this from the regional states is very much it's not so much that they're criticizing the idea of the alliance itself which i think is quite um quite highlighting really and they're not necessarily against the idea of these three mostly western countries coming together they're more just against the arms race idea which is almost quite an easy thing to criticize i think most people can can get behind a criticism of a nuclear arms race there's very few people that you know wouldn't you, i think you struggle politically to say no no i want a nuclear arms race so but i think not, it's quite an easy one to make but we're not talking about a nuclear arms race yeah we're talking about but, an arms race nuclear powered submarines it's yeah not, and i think that's been it, lost it's in it. not like australia is is planning to build a thousand nuclear warheads For sure, or anything yeah. and it's definitely been lost in it not yeah. anytime soon i mean australia's <laughs> been very very keen on signing a lot of uh, a lot a lot of treaties over the years one of them one of them being the uh, non the nuclear non-proliferation treaty mm. and and it's worth ch- sorry just it's worth jumping in and saying although china is increasing its nuclear arsenal yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> from not that many to still a lot less than America in 10 years, but, yeah. but still significantly increasing it. So what about China itself then? What the, um, it's pretty obvious that they're not going to be pro this, this, but what exactly have they said about this? Um, it was kind of mild condemnation. It wasn't as, um, as vocal as you might expect. Um, partly, I think, because it's not going to change anything. But um, I think the announcement also took place like not long before the Huawei executive um, Meng Wanzhou was was released um, by the Canadians. So they probably knew that was in the offing, and they didn't want to upset the apple cart on that. So that maybe helped mitigate their their criticism um, somewhat. Obviously, outlets like the Global Times mm. went a bit crazy, um, but that's what they live for. So, but in terms of official statements, it was surprise. Obviously, Beijing would rather this didn't happen, 
But equally, you kind of think they surely they self-reflection isn't a strong suit of of the CCP. I don't think when it comes to foreign affairs. But you kind of think surely they would have expected something like this sooner or later with with how they've been acting over the last eight years um, with increased militarization and, and assertiveness. Hate that phrase, but you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. I think also, uh, yeah, it's it's been from what I've been able to find, it's the, the reaction from the CCP has been sort of quite unusual when compared to the CCP's reaction to Australia's calls for the inquiry into the uh, uh, origins of COVID. I mean, when that happened, um, the, the CCP were very hostile uh, to, and continue to be hostile in ter- towards Australia in terms of uh, in terms of sanctions. But you know, such this sort of move, they seem to have taken a you know the reaction seems to be a bit more muted and i think there's i think they're sort of taking a wait and see approach i guess it goes goes up there with one of the criticisms of the agreement as a whole and i think you both mentioned it towards the start of that section as well china's reaction has been fairly muted as well more muted than i think you'd expect and part of me so where i could sort of interpreted this was i don't think they see this as a particularly massive change in the balance of power as you both sort of said and i think to me, it's almost as if the agreement just formalizes what's been happening between these three states anyway. So it's almost, I was kind of thinking earlier, it's almost like you're being mugged by three people and they start mugging you and then they tell you, oh, we're mugging you. It's like, well, you already know that. You're, just, you're now just confirming it. They already know that this is happening. They already know that these three states have a good relationship and they already know that these three states have been planning to increase military coordination to some degree in the future anyway. So I think that's perhaps why China's not been so you know, not treated this as if this is like almost like a declaration of war or something like that. They, they seem to have been taking it in their stride almost, whereas behind closed doors, as, again, as you both said, they're probably, wouldn't say, uh, I wouldn't say panicking, but they're probably, you know, thinking, all right, we need to deal with this and we need to find a way. So how China's going to deal with it is what I want to talk about next and exactly what China's going to do. Because at the moment, this agreement's been formed very much with the idea of, all right, we'll do this, ball's in your court now, China. So I've got a couple of far-fetched scenarios that I was thinking about. And if I was China, what would I do? It's kind of what I asked myself. And I was thinking I'd probably want to form some form of agreement of my own. And I want to balance this out with my own agreement. And whether that be with the regional powers, such as Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, other countries, like improving relationships with these, or what I've written here, which is already partly taking place, is increased coordination with the Russian Navy in the Pacific region. And there's already actually quite a bit of a coordination between China and Russia in when it comes to naval development in the region. And in fact, Russia sold a lot of military equipment to the Chinese Navy in the past as well. And they do carry out joint uh, joint uh, drills here and there as well. So there's definitely some coordination. It's not a formal alliance, but it's a, it is a, a level of coordination. So what what do you guys think China's going to do to respond, if anything? Or do you think China's just going to largely ignore this? I think they'll largely ignore it. Yeah. Um, certainly compared to, like, defense agreements. China doesn't have any defense agreements with anyone. Um, I don't think it's looking to get them. Um Russia, yes, they've sold military technology, although that's as Chinese technology advances. For example, um, jet engines. Um, they used to buy a lot of, of Russian jet engines, and now they've moved to indigenous-built stuff. I don't really see it. Um, I don't see any partners that they would want um, having any sort of say on their on their military actions, to be honest. Mm. They're, they're, the Chinese military is expanding in size and capability. Well, certainly its surface fleet um they are increasingly looking into improving their asw their anti-submarine warfare uh capabilities which have been a bit lacking in the past um and they're just going to continue that you know china's on a trajectory it's going to continue on that trajectory orcas or not i think 
Mm. Um, this isn't significant enough to change change any Chinese policy. And also, as you're kind of right to say, it's going to take a while for for AUKUS to actually bear any fruit as well. Um, yeah, it plays into their China loves saying about Cold War mentality. You know, there's there's certain catchphrases um, that that get pumped out by by Chinese spokesmen and media, which which sometimes get picked up and repeated by by Western commentators as well. Um, and and a Cold War mentality is one of their favourites, and and this plays into that narrative. Um, but I don't really see it changing anything. Yeah, I think. And when it comes to, I suppose the, the the Russia the Russia side of that, I think they'll just sort of continue, you know, continue, you know, uh, co- uh, sort of you know joint joint efforts, sort of you know cooperation, but without any formal agreements, you know, with the Chinese and uh, with the Chinese in the in the Pacific region. But I think it'll just just to it'll be just to stay in uh, have some sort of involvement there. I mean, at the moment, the uh, Russia has. Uh, from what I've been able to find, uh, see from what I've been monitoring with, with regards to Russia, they're much more concerned at the moment with getting Nord Stream two approved, and uh, and of course what you know, keeping an eye on what's been happening in along the Pol- Poland Belarus border, and also their uh, their involvement in in the Donbass region in Ukraine is sort of you know consolidating their gains there and and making sure that you know what they've been up to since t- uh, twenty fourteen, uh, you know. Making sure they can actually capitalize on that and 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 uh, solidify their gains there. Yeah, if I pick up on that, I I think if you look at Russian strategic interests and Chinese strategic yeah. uh, strategic interests, there's not actually a lot of overlap, really. I mean, there's a narrative of the the China Russia sort of alliance, but you know, alignment. Um, but I don't really think that it's based on anything substantive other than sort of convenience. Yeah, convenience. Yeah. The, Two fingers up to yeah, yeah. Americans, kind of For thing. Sure. Maybe gives gives Russia the Russian Navy and and the you know out of Vladivostok a few headlines and and get struck their stuff. But as you say, Matt, they're the Russian interests are not you know they're they're in they're in Europe, they're in Syria, they're in places that they're in selling gas to Europe. You know they're not in places that China really cares about. Mm. The one place that maybe they do is Central Asia, yeah. and that's an area of competition. Yeah, that's co- competition, not cooperation. Yeah. So. so, that's pretty much everything we wanted to talk about today. But I just want to get a summary from the two of you, in a sentence. Then, from what from each of you, how would you sum? Like, what's your opinion on this agreement? How would you sum it up? I'd say it's a positive move for the rules security in the Asia Pacific region, um, but it's going to take a while for it to bear any fruit. Yeah, I. Honestly, I'm I'm very skeptical um, uh, about this about this having any kind of any kind of substance. It all sounds it all it all sounds great, but just from what I've you know just reflecting on past experience and what I've been able to find on on AUKUS, I I, th- I think this is I, I think this is just all all talk, uh, no walk in line with sort of past tradition of uh, ongoing tradition of defense uh, Australian defense policy. Um, you know, tactically, Australian cap- military capabilities are great, but when it comes to operational, strategic level kind of activities, uh, Australia is severely lacking. And I think this, at the moment, unless unless this does bear fruit down the track, which is going to be a while, mm. um, I don't. I, I, I'm very skeptical about it. Okay, that was a very long sentence. <laughs> yeah, but um, sorry. Yeah, I'd agree. <laughs> but America's involved. It's not just an Australian 
pipe dream. It's it's you know, there's yeah. other players involved and they're serious. So So thank you both and thank you all for listening. We release episodes of the Roundtable every quarter, but you can follow us on YouTube to catch our fortnightly video series, The Insight, where our analysts discuss various security and political related themes in 10 minute videos. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Intelligence Fusion wherever you get your podcasts from.